You're listening to a sermon preached at University Presbyterian Church in Seattle, Washington. For more information, please visit our website, theupc.org. On September 14th, 1990, a little over 25 years ago, two men made history. Father and a son playing on the same major league baseball team. And the uh, father was up first. He was at bat, uh, number two in the lineup, and uh, he smacked the ball over the left field fence, a home run. And, and then the son, who was batting number three in the lineup, stepped into that batter's box, looked at that pitcher, watched him wind up, watched a pitch go past him, watched another pitch go past him, three balls, and then on that fourth pitch, he just nailed it, swung for the fences, and sent a line drive hit over the left field fence, almost in the same place that his father had done. It's never before happened in history. It's never happened uh, since. Back-to-back, father-son, home runs. It's amazing. It made history. Now, you know this story because these two guys were Mariners at the time. Actually, they were playing the Angels. It didn't go so well for us uh, today. But this is Ken Griffey Sr., Ken Griffey uh, Jr., father and son. The reporters, of course, intrigued by this, watched very closely what happened between these two men. And and some seemed to notice that between the two at-bats, they had a private word with each other, that the father said something to the son. And uh, after the game, they went and they found Ken Griffey Jr. And they asked him, so what did your dad say to you in that moment? And uh, Junior said, you know, uh, you know, it's kind of, it was a fog. I don't remember him very much. But what I do remember is what he said is this. He said, um, now that's how it's done, son. <laughs> I just love that. I love that because for me, it's like a little bit of smack in that, a little bit of tra- trash talk, don't you think? Um, it, it seems to me that if you, if you, if you deconstruct that, what uh, Senior is saying to Junior is at least two things. One is... Your old man still got it, kid. Don't you think? Your old man still got it, kid. And I think the other thing that he's saying is, you can do this because you're my son. Don't you think he's saying that? I believe in you, son. It's got to make all the difference in the world to get up in the batter's box after someone's just hit a home run. I mean, you could be filled with anxiety, and yet he just watched those balls go past him and then send it out of the park. Now, I, this is really interesting to me. I, I, I want to work with this image a little bit tonight because it seems like there's a snapshot there of the ministry of the Holy Spirit in the life of a follower of Jesus. I want you to think about this because there are moments in life, when the night is dark and the path is long. And in that moment, you need something more than just words in your ears. What you need is a voice that speaks to the depths of your being, to the depths of your soul, that says to you, in essence, your father has got this. And I believe in you. Because you're my child. See, and I think that's what the Holy Spirit wants to say to the follower of Jesus. Constantly in our experience of him. So let's hold on to this picture together as we finish reading the text uh, that we began reading earlier. And see how the Holy Spirit brings light into our lives. So please open up your Bibles to Ephesians chapter 5 verses 10 through 20. 
If you're grabbing the Pew Bible, turn to page 951. And uh, I want you to encourage you to hold that open tonight because I'm going to point to several things. I want you to be able to see what's in the text. And if you're able, would you stand with me? Let's read God's word aloud together. Ephesians chapter 5, verses 10 down to verse 20. When we're done reading, I'll say, this is the word of the Lord. So that if you believe it, you can say, thanks be to God. Listen carefully, you're reading his holy word. Try to find out what is pleasing to the Lord. Take no part in unfruitful works of darkness, but instead expose them. For it is shameful even to mention what such people do secretly, but everything exposed by the light becomes visible. For everything that becomes visible is light. Therefore it says, sleeper awake, rise from the dead and Christ will shine on you. Be careful then how you live, not as unwise people, but as wise, making the most of the time because the days are evil. So do not be foolish, but understand what the will of the Lord is. Do not get drunk with wine, for that is debauchery, but be filled with the Spirit as you sing psalms and hymns and spiritual songs among yourselves, singing and making melody to the Lord in your hearts, giving thanks to God the Father at all times and for everything in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. This is the word of the Lord. Grass withers and the flower falls, but the word of the Lord lasts forever. Please be seated. This is actually good for church. Sleeper awake. That's what he says. Sleeper awake. Rise from the dead and Christ will shine on you. I just love this. To me, this is the emotional heart of the whole epistle to the Ephesians. This little poetic bit that's indented there. Sleeper awake, rise from the dead, and Christ will shine on you. We've been learning that the follower of Jesus is on a walk. In fact, that when Paul speaks of the Christian life, he doesn't use the word live as our translators show. He uses the word walk again and again. You can see it here in verse 8b at the end. He says, live as children of the light. Literally, it's walk as children of the light. So we're on a walk with Jesus But what we learned tonight is that 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 walk is through virtual darkness. It's a walk at the dawn. That's why he says, let Christ shine on you. We're not walking only at dawn, but we're truly walking with the dawn and the person of the Holy Spirit. Now, dawn is a moment of hope, is it not? I mean, here's what comes to my mind when I read this little poetic bit in the heart of the text. I picture myself lost in the woods at night, separated from my party, off the trail, with fear and anxiety, go running through the woods, trying to find my way back, going in every direction, tripping over things, bumping into things, finally exhausted, just collapsing in fatigue and falling asleep on the floor of the forest. It's cold, it's dark. And then I wake up as the morning starts to break. Not the full sunrise, but just those first few rays of the sunshine that start to add a little bit of a glow or tint to the night sky. It's just enough to give me hope that soon that sun will be up, the rays will pierce through the branches, and uh, my skin will warm and my path will be illuminated. It's a moment of hope. This is the, the, the image that Paul's giving his readers. The text says in verse 14... It says, 
which has made biblical scholars think that he's probably quoting from the Old Testament, because oftentimes New Testament writers would make reference to the Old Testament by saying it says, meaning scripture says. But there actually is no exact quotation like that in the Old Testament. There are echoes, uh, things like Isaiah 60, verse 1, arise for your light will shine on you, as God speaks to his people in exile, but no exact quote. Could be a hymn or song that they sang. It could also be translated, he says. And this is what comes to my mind. I just think of all those times when Jesus bends over the dead and calls them back to life. You know what I mean? Remember Jairus' daughter? Jesus bends over her and speaks words that are so precious that the early gospel writers didn't even want to translate them. They preserved the original Aramaic where Jesus says, Talitha kum, little girl, arise. Or Jesus bending over a figure being carried on a stretcher in a funeral procession. A widow from a little town called Nain is in deep grief and crisis as her son just passed away and they're carrying him out. Jesus can't walk by. He stops. He bends over this young man. He says, young man, I say to you, rise. And the guy sits up and they're all freaked out. Or Jesus speaking to his own friend who had been dead for three days. The darkness of the tomb holds him and the stench of death is there. And yet Jesus says, Lazarus, come forth. And he sits up and there he is. To me, it's almost like the Apostle Paul wants his readers in Asia Minor around Ephesus to hear Jesus speaking these words directly into their darkness. Arise, let Christ shine on you. Who would speak these words? Who would say these things? Well, I think it's the Holy Spirit. It's not Christ, because Christ is referred to in the third person here. I think the Holy Spirit would speak something uh, like this. John Calvin, searching for an analogy for the Holy Spirit, calls his readers' attention to the sunshine. People were asked the question, how can God be present to us when the Father is in heaven, some other time-space dimension, and Jesus has ascended to the right hand of the Father, so what does it mean to, to say that God is here? And Calvin says, well, the sun is in heaven, right? But the sunshine is here. It's very physically on our bodies, warming us and, and illuminating the world around us. So in the same way, the Holy Spirit's the eminence of the Father and the Son, the radiance of God who's present to us here. Or Augustine used to speak of the Holy Spirit as the love between uh, the Father and the Son, the personal agent of their affection for one another, sent by them into the world within the creation so that we can be brought into that same love and affection. Here's where I think the junior-senior story is kind of helpful. I think Griffey, senior and junior, might help us understand what it means to walk with the dawn. Three times in the passage we've read tonight, the word walk occurs, and there are three sections and movements. I'd like to look at those sections, starting with the middle uh, with you, and draw out three lessons that I think Paul is embedding in this passage about walking with Jesus through the power of the Holy Spirit, okay? So here's the first lesson. The Holy Spirit empowers you to walk in patience, in patience, patience. Paul writes in verse 8, walk as children of the light. And I got to tell you, that takes patience. Junior was a baseball player, and baseball is a game of patience. 
right? I mean, it just takes patience even sitting through a game in the, in the stands. Uh, it takes patience in the batter's box. You've got to wait for your pitch. But imagine the patience it takes to uh, grow up as a kid of a major league baseball player wanting so badly to play baseball the way he plays, and yet you can't. I mean, Junior becomes, as you know, Hall of Famer. But you don't start baseball in the Hall of Fame. You start baseball with T-ball. I mean, can you imagine Ken Griffey playing T-ball, right? He gets thrown out at first. He's not fast enough. He's not strong enough. He's got to sit on the bench. You're not as good as the other kids. There he is with other first graders, you know. I think if I were coaching him, when they got to coach pitch level, I would have been nasty because his dad's on TV, right? And you could, but you could wind up and you could throw, you could strike out Ken Griffey and you could go home and go, hey, I striked out Ken Griffey. Well, it was his son, but still, it's the same name, right? So... Had it been hard to be a child of Ken Griffey, uh, wanting so desperately to be a great baseball player, and it's just not time for you. But the truth is, you have in his DNA, right? You have the DNA of your parents in every cell of your body, unspooling through time. So, Junior, just be patient. Wait, great things are coming. Do you know why many people don't get very far with Jesus? I'll tell you what I've learned. It's discouragement. It's discouragement. And why do we get discouraged? Well, two things. First of all, we're just fundamentally impatient as Americans. And, uh, and the dawn takes time, especially when it's really dark and really cold. It takes time. It's, just, it's part of the metaphor. The other reason is that we, you and I, tend to bring black and white thinking to our discipleship. But the dawn's not like that. The dawn is gray. In other words, it takes a living intention to follow Jesus. Let me say it this way. Jesus is not a dualist. In fact, dualism is the lowest form of religion. And every tradition is tainted by the temptation towards dualism. Uh, the Greeks had this dualism b- between uh, spirit and matter. Uh, Eastern philosophies between yin and yang. A biblical traditions between good and evil, light and dark. And Jesus just isn't that way. Now, the contemporaries, the Apostle Paul, divided time into two ages. And in chapter 1, verse 21, you can notice this, where he speaks of this age and the age to come. And his contemporaries thought of them as very separate periods of time. There was the age of darkness... And uh, Paul refers to this in chapter 6, this present darkness. And then there's the age of things to come, the, the age of, of light, the future. But what Paul has discovered in the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ is that we're still in the age of darkness, his death, but the age of light has begun. These are not distinct phases, but history overlaps at this point. And we are in a season of gray. And that's what the dawn is. It's awkward, isn't it? It's uncomfortable. But it means that in the same place, at the same time, there are both light and darkness. And I'm talking about the world, but I'm also talking about our hearts. And I know we'd like to deny that and like to say, I'm all better now because I have Jesus in my life, but you're not, even if you do. The point here is be patient with the darkness in your life. Be patient with the darkness at dawn. Live with tension. If you're a follower of Jesus, you have the Holy Spirit in your life. You have the DNA of heaven unspooling in 
every cell of your body right now. But it's going to take time. Okay? The Holy Spirit empowers you to walk in patience. Here's a second lesson. The Holy Spirit empowers you to walk with a new identity. Walk in love, the Apostle Paul says in the first section of this passage. Verse 2. But I want to tell you that being able to walk in love requires being able to be loved. And that is really hard for many of us, to be loved, to let ourselves be loved. Junior had a champion's name on his back. Griffey, it's on his back. He probably doesn't even notice it's there. But you know what? That's his identity, Griffey. And yet, I want to tell you, can you imagine how hard it would be to grow up in the shadow of a great baseball player? I mean, his father, Griffey Sr., was a great baseball player. My wife's from Cincinnati, Ohio. Uh, so, you know, Griffey was on the big red machine. Griffey was a three-time all-star player. Griffey won back-to-back -back World Series. Griffey. And this boy who at Little League has Griffey on his back, he's got to think to himself, I'll never be like my dad. Constantly, unfavorably comparing himself to his father. And it was hard for him. He lived with depression. They got in fights all the time. In fact, many people don't know this, but he tried to take his own life. Uh, uh, Griffey Jr. did. Because he just couldn't believe that he was the real Griffey in comparison to his dad. This is about identity. Let me talk about identity for a, a second. Uh, you may have heard the old joke about the Englishman, the Canadian, the Frenchman. Uh, they were all captured in the war, and before they were executed, each one was given one last request, as they're supposed to do. And the Englishman says, I'd like a cup of tea. Of course, he gets a cup of tea. The Canadian says, I'd like 15 minutes to talk about Canadian identity. And the Frenchman says, I'd like to be shot before the Canadian, please. <laughs> so, so, yeah, with, you know, shoot me now, because I'm going to talk about identity for a few minutes. It's very important to the Apostle Paul. It's so easy to miss it. What is the identity that Paul attributes to his readers? How does he address them? If you go back to the very first verse of this letter, you're going to see how he refers to them. He refers to them as saints. Saints. Again, here, verse 3, chapter 2, he calls them saints. It means literally holy ones. Now, this is kind of shocking that, that these people are to be considered saints because as we read uh, he has to talk to them about fornication, sexual, which is sexual immorality. To talk to them about impurity. He has to talk to them about greed and this list of sins. You go, how could we have that and saints in the same people? But that's just the point. He's not talking about their lifestyle when he calls them saints. He's talking about their birthright when he calls them saints. Remember Jesus talking to Nicodemus, the Holy Spirit will give you birth from, a he from heaven. And he's saying, you know, this is the name on the back of your jersey. It's saint. That's who you are. Now, we look around and we go, I, I, I doubt that. He's talking about not the way you live, but the way that you are loved. And Paul does call them to act holy, but only because that's who they are. He's not saying you have to act holy. He's saying you get to act holy because this is just who you are as a saint. Desmond Tutu writes, I know that the space is very small between, quote, I'm doing it in response to love and, quote, I'm doing it to be loved. But in that space resides the difference between joy-filled peace and despair. And you've got to decide which it's going to be. 
What Paul is saying is there's this difference between what we're calling a be-to-do mindset, I know who I am, and because I know who I am, I know what I get to do, and on the other hand, a do-to-be mindset. Gosh, I think if I do this, 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 and this, or don't do that, 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 and that, then I will be someone that matters in the world. Paul goes, he goes, you're already a saint. You don't need to do anything, right? Actually, the book of Ephesians, the whole thing is a be-to-do argument. Just step back and look at the whole structure. The first three chapters are all about who you are because of what God has done in Jesus. And the latter three chapters are all about what you get to do because of who you are. He makes a be-to-do argument in verse 1 of this chapter. He says, because you're beloved children, live in love. That's be-to-do. Later on, I think it's verse 8 where he says, you were darkness, but now you're light, and so walk as children of the light. Just do what you are. And uh, he says, you're saints, so live like saints would live. You get to. You want to know who you really are? You're a saint. You're a saint. Let God love you. Now, this is really hard for most of us. It's really hard for me. I got to tell you, forget about being a pastor. Me just being a Christian as a member of this community, I so often feel like a fraud or a hypocrite. I mean, the other day I was riding my bike with my wife and I said, you know what? My life uh, is so filled with unbelief. It's like unbelievable. When I think about how often I approach challenges and decisions that I'm making, it's just, I, I'm informed by unbelief. And I go, who do I think I am? I must be fooling everybody. I have this raging inner critic. I've told you this before. And by the way, all of us have an inner critic. There's nothing wrong with that. But oftentimes our inner, inner critic is speaking out of our sense of shame. And the problem for me is that my, uh, my inner critic's like a drunken fan in the stands. And I've bought him season tickets and, and given him a seat behind home plate, right? I'm constantly hearing, hey, bada, bada, hey, bada, bada, swing, bada, I told you so, right? It's oppressive after a while. And what it does is it pushes me into a do-to-be mindset. Well, I think, oh, if I can hit this ball, maybe I'll be somebody. And the Holy Spirit says, uh-uh-uh-uh-uh-uh. It's a message out of the pit of hell. Let me tell you who you are. You're a saint. And all you have to do is accept that. You are fully loved. When we don't accept that, the problem is that we then create the conditions for sin. I wish I had more time to show you this, but if you just look at these uh, sins in verse 3, they're actually mentioned twice. First in in verse 3, they're adjectives. Then in verse 4, they're nouns. They're uh, actions in the first instance, the same three sins, but then they become identities in the second instance. This is what happens. If you've got a do-to-be mindset, then the things that you do begin to become your identities. Danger, Will Robinson. Right? And, and, and the reason for that is you need love. And when you don't experience yourself as fully, wholly loved by God, then you're going to go for substitutes. And this is what sexual immorality or fornication, it's actually just false intimacy. Or, or uncleanliness, it's, it's a cultic word, so it's just all, actually just false worship. Or greed is just about false security. And so Paul goes, you don't need any of that stuff. You're fully loved. I mean, you've got real intimacy with God. You've got real uh, uh, worship with God. You've got real security with God because he loves you, all of you. So I just got to come to terms with the fact that the, 
that God loves the selfish, arrogant, lustful George as much as he loves the wise, creative, and bold George because he loves all of me. And he loves all of you too. I have a friend who says most people don't live holy lives because they don't know that they are holy. We're unholy saints, if you want to call us that way, but God doesn't even see us through that lens. He's not looking at you through your shame like you're looking at yourself. All he sees is the saint who is holy with a W, loved. So here's the point. At dawn, you are who you will be in the noonday light of God's love. In other words, I know at dawn, you see all the shadows in your heart, but that's not really who you are. Who you really are is who you will be in the noonday light of God's love. Okay, let's move to the third lesson. The Holy Spirit empowers you to walk with gratitude. Walk in patience, walk with a new identity. Finally, walk with gratitude. Looking back here at the end of the passage, I think you have to turn a page. Uh, verse 15, Paul says, walk in wisdom. And to walk in wisdom, that takes confidence. Baseball is all about failure. It's a, it's a game uh, of failure. The, it, Ken Griffey Jr. is like one of the greatest baseball players that's ever lived. You know what his lifetime batting average is? 284. Which means that out of every four times he gets into that batter's box, three of them, almost three of them, is a complete failure. That's the way the game works. You win at baseball not being better at the game than other people, as far as I can tell. You win at baseball by, by knowing what to do with your failure. And, have, and, and so you can play with confidence. Well, I think what matters to Ken Griffey Jr. in that interaction between father and son is the one word, son. I think when Jr. hears his dad call him son, that gives him the confidence to swing for the fences. Because now he's swinging not out of a performance, but out of relationship and complete unconditional acceptance. Now, we are grateful because of grace. Remember, gratitude is the language of grace. And thanksgiving has come up earlier in this passage. It's been hinted at in this, at the end of the sin list. But now it's in full bloom because here at the end of the passage, there's a party that's going on. And the Holy Spirit is... And it doesn't, it's not a party that requires wine. It's the Holy Spirit who's making it happen. And it's a party which people are profoundly grateful. So much so that they're singing songs and hymns and spiritual songs. They're grateful even in their hearts. They've got this intrinsic sense of God's grace that is reorienting them to live lives of gratefulness. In that sense, uh, the Holy Spirit is doing here what he does in Romans 8, where he makes us cry out, Abba, Father. I think what he's doing is he's putting us into the divine family. He's putting us in the place of the Son. The Holy Spirit will identify you with the Son of God. And so I like this picture. I almost see uh, the Mrs. Griffey as the, playing the role of the Holy Spirit. This is the Father and the Son, and she's holding uh, these together in love. And the Holy Spirit will do something similar, hold us in that love, put us in the place of the Son. There's gratitude in heaven. The Father is so grateful that the Son gave his life obediently. And the Son is so grateful that the Father gave him this mission and gives him you as his inheritance, as we already read. And the Holy Spirit sent out of this gratitude to create gratitude on earth. And he does it by identifying you, by putting you in the place of the Son. First in the place of the Son as he hangs on the cross. And remember what Matthew says as Jesus is living his last three hours of life. A dark cloud descended over the land. Darkness. 
Why? Because in that moment, Jesus is absorbing the darkness of my heart, the darkness of your heart. He's putting himself in your place in that moment. Remember, he cries out, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? They preserve the Aramaic there as well. Because in that moment, Jesus experiences abandonment. First time in eternity that there's an experience of abandonment in the heart of the Trinity. Why does all this happen? He takes our place so that we can take his place. So that the light of his resurrection life can shine on us. He's abandoned so that we never need to be abandoned by, by God, the Father. I mean, what happened to so many of us? Uh, what happened in, in the street youth video? I mean... She was abandoned. God will never do that to you. Does not need to do that because of the abandonment of the son. So the point here is that at dawn, there's a party. There's laughter, even in the darkness. It's grateful laughter. Because we live not by our performance, but by a relationship that's secure in the family of God. Sleeper awake. Rise from the dead. And Christ will shine on you. These are the words of the Holy Spirit to you. And my prayer to you tonight, friends, is that you'll let them penetrate the defenses of your heart. You'll allow yourself to be fully loved. You'll allow the Holy Spirit to give you patience, to take time to grow and train, change, and, and that you'll have confidence. A couple of weeks ago, a young woman was sitting in our sanctuary, and uh, she was crying. And one of our recent graduates, college graduates, asked her if he could pray with her. And they talked and they prayed together. And at the end of their prayer, he said to her, Now, what I need you to do is tell God that you're his favorite one. And she said, Oh, I could never do that. And someone was overhearing the conversation and he said, Oh, I'm his favorite one. And uh, then the guy was sharing with him said, Yeah, I'm his favorite one too. And then she smiled and she got it. An infinite God can have an infinite number of favorite ones. So friends, you're his favorite one. Tonight and for all eternity. He could never love you more than he loves you right now at this moment. In all that you are, the wonder that you are. And even in the shadows uh, in which you walk and will continue to walk. Whatever you're going through tonight, your father's got this. You're his child. So, step into the box and swing for the fences. Let's pray. Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, we thank you for the loving circle in which you have lived for all eternity. And we thank you for the grace that has invited us into that same experience. We're, we are grateful. And today, on this day, Pentecost Sunday, 2016, we want to open our lives in a fresh way to the fullness of your spirit. Come, Father, fill us afresh. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. For more UPC audio or to find out about service times, visit us at upc.org. All online audio is available on CD and cassette. To order copies of sermons and classes, please visit upc.org audio Email audio at upc.org or call 206-524-7301, extension 117.